chocolate-covered medicine, a candy to make a king's fiancé smile, and the patron saint of pierogies. This week, it's curious traveler Christine Van Blockland. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Destination Eat Drink is where food and travel come together on the Destination Eat Drink website, on the Destination Eat Drink YouTube channel, and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. And this week, curious traveler Christine Van Blockland is back to talk about the new season of her great show, Curious Traveler, on PBS. But first, if you like what we do here at Destination Eat Drink, please vote for us as the best lifestyle podcast in the 15th annual Taste Awards. I'm really blown away that we were even nominated and now named as a finalist, but your vote will determine who wins. And today is pretty much the last day you can vote. If you're listening to this on Friday when it drops, I think it might end actually on Saturday, but this is it. So if you haven't voted yet, please do so. I'd really appreciate it. And you can find a link in the show notes to uh, do that and to vote or go to thetasteawards.com. And thank you very, very much. Christine Van Blockland is a three-time Emmy nominee and the host, writer, and producer of the PBS TV show Curious Traveler. Season six is out now. Check your local station for times and dates. Christine talks about making shows in France and Switzerland and Poland and tells me about the best place to sample Swiss cheese and a characteristic Swiss dish from Lucerne, an amazing food and wine museum in France, and fascinating salt sculptures in a Polish salt mine. And we geek out on delicious mustard. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Christine Van Blockland, The Curious Traveler. Welcome back to Destination Eat Drink. It's been a couple years since I've had you on the show. So glad to get to catch up with you. It has. And my apologies. I think I missed a year there, much like yourself. Traveling kind of scrambles the brain sometimes. So I I was thrilled when you asked me again. Thank you so much for having me. You just put out season six of Curious Traveler and I watched them all. I watched all 12 of them. (laughs) They're so entertaining. I just, I love watching you. You know, before we dive into the episodes specifically, I just want to say one of the things that I really like about your show is So many travel shows now are focused on the here and now, you know, the the um, this experiential type travel, which I love, which is fantastic. You take a bit of a different tact, which is so cool. And the reason I like it so much is because you provide context. I can't tell you how many people I watch on videos on TV shows who are like, yeah, I don't know what this is about. I don't know why this is here. And I'm like, well, you need to watch Curious Traveler if you want to know why, who, what, where, when, how, because hey, Christine's going to tell that. you, man. That'll work for me. That'll work for me. No, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I feel the same way. It's um, not just a pet peeve. It's a travesty. I say, why in the world are you going to spend all this money and spend your time and go explore Europe or wherever you're going to go and not 
know or have an appreciation of why you're there. You know, it's in a minute, hopefully we'll talk about pierogies in Poland. Well, why does Poland have pierogies, but Italy has ravioli and, you know, Thailand has like, you know, Thai wraps. So it, it's, there's a reason for food being in certain places. There's a reason the architecture is different. And, and if you don't know the context, you don't know the history, I feel like you're not getting the full travel experience. You're literally just going and taking a selfie of yourself and going, oh, that was delicious. Let's go home. <laughs> and that's not the reason to travel. At least it's not for me. Preach on. Um, yeah. So let's start with pierogies because you did a few episodes in Poland and you can't go to Poland without pierogies. So uh, how were the pierogies? How did you like them? They were so good. I mean, and this is the part where I sound maybe a little bit more like the traditional tourist where it's like, oh, okay, you've had pierogies at home, but they're different when you have them in Poland. It's like, well, of course they are. So we um, went and we actually uh, learned how to make them in this adorable little pierogi place. And it was called Sirena Irina. And the fun thing about that name is it gets its name from the siren, which is another name for mermaids, which is a symbol of Warsaw. And of course, the sirens were the ones that tempted um, Odysseus, you know, in Homer's Odyssey. And they got pictures of that all over the restaurant. Um, so we learned how to make them. And I am not a chef at all. I have a huge appreciation for people who are chefs and people have the patience to make these things. But you'd think a pierogi is a pretty simple thing. You know, it's dough and then you have stuffing. You have like traditional things, whether it's what we would call cottage cheese, you know, with potato or onion or mushroom. But it's not as simple as you, as you seem. And it was so much fun for us to learn uh, by the ladies who make them. And, you know, it the the shape of a true pierogi, it's like a, like a half moon shape. Mm -hmm. And it's got this little kind of like frill around the edges. And the way they make them so fast, and I know you can't see this, but I'm doing the motion right now with my hand. <laughs> it's like they take their thumb and they go, and I was trying to do that and conduct an interview at the same time. Um, mine were not that pretty, uh, but they were still delicious. Um, it was just so good. It was so good. And again, it was sort of like, you know, you're eating a piece of history that made it even better. I grew up in uh, Chicagoland. I consider Chicago to be my hometown. <laughs> and yeah, uh, no, big, big Polish roots there. Huge, for sure. huge Polish population. And so I've had my share of pierogies, never been to uh, never been to Poland. But one thing I learned watching this episode about Warsaw is about St. Hyacinth. And so I looked it up. I looked up St. Hyacinth, St. Hyacinth, because I only knew Hyacinth as the flower. Um, mm -hmm. But I looked it up. There's actually a St. Hyacinth church in Chicago, which I guess shouldn't be that surprising. But um, tell, tell us uh, who is St. Hyacinth uh, specifically and how does he relate to uh, Poland and pierogies? I love it. And thank you for uh, telling me there's a St. Hyacinth in Chicago. That makes a lot of sense. St. Hyacinth is the, drum roll please, the patron saint of pierogies. Love yes, it. there really is a saint. A saint I know, I love it too. There's a saint for everything. And the short version of why is during an invasion, um, you know, um, in the Middle Ages, St. Hyacinth came along and, you know, the crops were all gone. The people were starving. He made the crops grow and basically created this simple peasant food called the pierogi, where they were just using what they had from the land, you know, with the grains and the potatoes and the cheese, that kind of stuff. And that's the reason why. And then it was a, considered a blessing because this food helped to save the population um, after war. And I was like, well, anything that has its own patron saint is fine by me. <laughs> it's It's good stuff. 
stuff. It's good stuff. I think I think foods, we need to have more foods that have a patron saint. You know, we live outside of yes. Lisbon. There needs to be a patron saint of Pastel de Nada. And I, I, don't, I don't know yeah, who we're going to nominate, sure. but we got to find someone to be the patron saint of Pastel. Maybe there is one and I'm just not even aware of it. One of my favorite Pastel de Nada places in Lisbon is uh, in the St. Anthony neighborhood and the uh, pastelaria is called St. Anthony's. I've been there. I was Isn't just about to tell you that. I, it's so good. It is so good. And it, the thing that I remember the most is you want to fuel up on those because if you look, then you have to climb the hill to get up to the <laughs> castle. I was like, oh, well, clearly I need three more of these for my strength. For my strength. <laughs> it is. Um, I, have to, I have to tell you two quick things, though, about pierogies, just in case anybody's going to go to Warsaw specifically to get them. At that same Sirena Irina, because um, it was very traditional, when we had, once we all sat down to lunch after we had filmed. They had um, a couple of different courses of things before we had the uh, the pierogies. And I was going, they are going to let us have the pierogies, right? We were starving. They gave us this soup. Um, it's a, It was a beet soup. It was more of a broth. It wasn't a borscht. They told me the name of it. Maybe one of your listeners will know. It was this clear broth. It was the most delicious thing. And I travel with a bunch of, you know, our crew, a bunch of burly men. They're very meat and potatoes. I, I told the guys, I was like, this is the best thing ever. I'm thinking they're going to be like, oh, why would I care about a soup? They also said <laughs> it was the best thing ever. And it's really a traditional Polish thing. And I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it. Um, so that's excellent. And then also in Warsaw, it's a little bit more upscale of a restaurant, just in case people are wanting recommendations. It's called the Black Duck. And they had the best pierogies ever. And I think it's because they keep everything simple. Um, I think once the once the pierogies are boiled, you just put a little melted butter or something on it. And I mean, the, just divine, divine. There and, and it's ble- and it's blessed by a saint. Hey, there you go. So That's really right. I am smiling ear to ear right now because we're getting history, we're getting context, and we're getting restaurant recommendations. So there you go. I had to throw that one in. I had to. It was so good. This is right where I want to be. You also did an episode in Krakow, and outside of yes. Krakow is these salt mines. And I've seen pictures of these salt mines, but it really came to life for me watching this episode because the just the vastness, the immensity and the complexity of these salt salt sculptures that they did in these mines is just incredible. Talk about your experience going down into these salt mines. Yeah, I mean, it was mind boggling for for me as well. So it's the Vialichka salt mine and it's just outside Krakow. It has a UNESCO status. Um, now I had been to salt mines before where they, it just, you kind of go down, you slide down or whatever it is they let tourists do. And it looks like a mine and you're like, oh, well, this is interesting. This thing, I mean, even the, though I had done the research ahead of time, I was not mentally prepared for this. So it's a whole world under there. So originally it was dug out obviously to harvest the salt and make money for the country and all that stuff. But as time went on and all the different thousands of miners went there, uh, they were building chambers for prayer. So that's where we get the probably the most impressive chamber. Um, so first of all, it, it goes about a thousand feet underground. Apparently, it's miles and miles of passages. Tourists can only go to 2% of it. That tells you how big it is. And 2% of it will take you at least four hours. Um, so the biggest chamber or the most impressive chamber is called St. Kinga Chapel. Got another saint there. And it is an entire church that's 300 feet underground. 
and the sculptures and the bar relief that you that you mentioned those were actually done by the miners and the salt mine today they're very very proud of that heritage where they didn't hire outside professional artists. It was the miners themselves obviously had this very artistic talent. And they would, I mean, they sculpted the last supper into the into the side of the chamber, you know, all out of salt. And then they created uh, an altar and they've got these chandeliers. And there's um, a statue of Pope John Paul II, who, of course, was Polish. It's just incredible. And then you kind of walk through all the passages and um, Copernicus uh, was Polish. Obviously, Poland's very proud of that. There's a huge statue of Copernicus. You kind of walk in, you look up, you're like, whoa, he was an important guy. Um, And just (laughs) chamber after chamber. And you just you sometimes forget that you're underground. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Oh, one funny thing I remember. And I put a note here to tell you. So obviously, it's a very educational site as well. So when we were filming, there were tons and tons of school groups there and it's all made out of salt. And I just sort of pictured all the teachers and the chaperones saying, all right, kids, so it's all salt. Whatever you do, don't lick the walls. <laughs> and you know how many kids we saw licking the It was hysterical. <laughs> and my crew kept saying, come on, Christine, do a joke about, about, li-. and I was like, I am not licking that wall. It's not happening. But I can, I just imagine like what a fun and wonderful memory for and you, anybody who grew up in Poland, like, yeah, as a child, of course, I licked the walls of the salt mine. It was really sweet. I thought oh it was a funny God. little memory. I would, <laughs> you know, show, shows you my maturity level. I would have definitely licked the wall. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> everybody was doing it. And I'm just going, yeah, but you don't know who else right. who's licked that section. Who was the of last it? person sure. who licked it? <laughs> so funny. It was so funny. But that was that was definitely a wonder of the world. I mean, it, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And you've done a great job of describing it, but I'm just going to tell the folks who are listening to please seek out this episode and watch it because the the visuals that you come up with yeah. is just absolutely stunning. Loved it. Um, let's move on to uh, Switzerland. You did a few episodes there as well. Yeah. And, you know, when when we talk about Switzerland, first thing that comes to my mind, chocolate. Chocolate. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Talk a little bit about uh, Swiss chocolate, if you could. Sure. Um, So when we filmed in Lucerne, um, we did a special segment just on the chocolate. And of course, you're spoilt for choice in Lucerne for the chocolate shops. Um, We chose one where the owner um, was really fascinating. And the shop, gosh, uh, I'm going to get the dates wrong, at least to the 1930s. Um, And it's just, it's got all this beautiful woodwork and all the cases and things in there. And of course, she only gets her chocolates from regional uh, dairies, you know, so it comes from happy cows make happy chocolate. And it's just you walk in and, you know, you can keep your diamonds. Give me a case full of different types of chocolates right. and I'm in heaven. Yes, yes. And, and the thing that made it really sweet. Oh, she used to be a banker, but she said, I'm not going to spend my life being surrounded by money. I want to spend my life being surrounded by chocolate. In fact, I want to be buried in chocolate. I was like, you're my gal. <laughs> you're my gal. No doubt. But the thing that, that made it really sweet, it was kind of that that old fashioned experience where you kind of walk in um, and without, without curious travelering you too much. So the origin of the beautiful cases of the chocolates actually came from Belgium when it was a pharmacy. So if you ever go to an old fashioned pharmacy or old fashioned apothecary, you'll notice it's the same kind of structure as a chocolate shop. And that's because they used to cover the medicines with chocolate and blah, 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 blah. 
Anyway, so now when you come into a traditional chocolate shop, you kind of look up and the proprietor will have all of the shelves behind him or her and then the cases in front. So when you walk in, you're kind of looking at these cases. And the thing that makes it great is she is the specialist. She knows all of the stuff. She's the sweetest woman on the planet. And she'll kind of say, you know, you walk in, you go, there's too many. What do I want? And then so she kind of interviews you. (laughs) And then based on that interview, she'll tell you the exact one you want. And she magically gets it right. And the really cute part of her shop and the thing that makes her so special is that in the spot, you know, and it's all completely cluttered. It's this tiny shop, but people are lining up outside anyway. So when you come in, there's one chair right across from where she stands. And she says that's her therapy chair because sometimes people come in and just sit and has and has they have the chocolate that she's chosen for them. <laughs> and she feels like their therapist. I'm like, chocolate therapy, sign me up, sign me up. Oh, I and it was just it was just lovely. I, I didn't get any inside secrets of, you know, how to make them taste so good. It's just other than she said, well, they it, they come from Swiss cows. So, of course, that's the answer. I'm like, OK, fine by me. Fine by me. In that episode. Christine, you said that you were going to take some chocolates home to mom. And I did. <laughs> okay. I was going to ask you, did they make it home? Because for me, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, oh, That's I'm going to so get this funny. for this person and this for this person. And then it doesn't make So now we always buy two of them because I'm like, all right, one for us smart. and one to go to the friends or the family. So glad to hear mom got her chocolates. It it was a close call there for a little while, but I knew I'd be sitting on the couch watching the episode with my mom, and so I better bring those home ahead of time. <laughs> I was like, I said it on camera, I better do it. <laughs> um, speaking of Swiss cows, you went to uh, Gruyere. Um, yeah. And I, I I mean I've had Gruyere cheese um, tons of times, love it. I I didn't I guess I didn't understand I didn't realize that it's an actual town. Um, did, did you have cheese while you were there? You must have, right? We did. Um, and looking back, um, only because sometimes, you know, the our our filming schedule gets so out of whack, uh, I'm kicking myself that we didn't include it in the episode. So after we had filmed and I had uh, interviewed, so I speak enough French to get by is the short sort of thing. So I had to do this interview with this woman who only spoke French and we sort of had an interpreter nearby. So we did all that. We got it done. This gorgeous town. I mean, it is, and I hope I don't sound like a cliche saying it looked like Beauty and the Beast out of Disney World. Mm-hmm. I mean, or, you know, a Disney movie. It's so precious. It's so preserved. No cars can go in there. You can almost like hear the clip clop of the horses going through. So we had done all this and then we had our lunch break and we got to sit on this little spot where if anybody wants to know where this spot is, it's kind of hidden behind the main street. And it's this overlook of the valley and of the castle. And we had this basket of this Gruyere cheese, you know, and the, the you know, the beautiful rounds of cheese. We had these wedges. And this French, this French bread, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And again, we were just sort of hungry and like ready to, I was like, why aren't we filming this? So at least we got some photos of it, but we felt like a true Swiss people were just sort of sitting in the outdoors and with this, this knife and just chunks of cheese and chunks of bread. We're going, oh my gosh, this is so good. I can't even deal with it right now. Um, So yes, I can can testify that it is amazing. You have to have Gruyere cheese overlooking Gruyere Castle in the tiny village of Gruyere. Otherwise, you know, it's not the same. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about another dish that you had in Lucerne called uh, uh, Hoogly Pastetti. 
Um, nice. Uh, maybe well I'm close. Done. Maybe I'm close. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you're great. You're great. That's perfect. So tell me about this because this is another one. When, when you talk about dishes that are similar in other places, this is another one. It's, you know, pastry filled with stuff. Uh, how do they do it in Lucerne? Yeah. So the the really tacky comparison is in America, a chicken pot pie, but it's not that it's so much more. Um, so it's a, called a huglia pastetti. And I had not heard of it before because it's not uh, it's not just a Swiss dish. It's a, a truly traditional Lucerne dish. Um, and I hope I don't get my centuries wrong. I think it, it came about in the 18th century and if not, probably early 19th. So apologies for forgetting that. But the ingredients sound so crazy, but it was really good. So traditionally, it's full of sausage, mushroom, raisins, hmm. brandy, and onions. Hmm. Um, now, I'm vegetarian, so I did the vegetarian version. And it was just heavenly. And, and you know this, anything in a, a puff pastry kind of thing that's fresh out of the oven, and you had a cold day, we had a cold day up on the mountains, you know, oh, our lives are so tough. And we sat down in this beautiful little restaurant. It's um, part of the Hotel Wildenman, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, Hotel Lucerne. And it was just lovely. It was just lovely. Um, and the quick history behind it, and you know this, as with most of the best traditional foods, it has peasant origins. You know, it was just sort of the leftovers. You have to use up the leftovers. You know, you don't throw anything out. Um, so that's where that kind of, other than brandy, brandy would have been an expensive thing, of course. Um, <laughs> that probably was added later. But it's just sort of like, you know, throwing together what you have left over. And it's just delicious. Just delicious. I can imagine like a farmer having this, his, his, his wife sends him out for the day and he gives him a couple of these to put in his pocket. And, you know, halfway through the day, he sits down in the pasture with the cows and enjoys exactly. this, enjoys this uh, pastry filled with uh, meat and vegetables. And um, yeah. glad that they're glad that they're keeping this tradition alive. Y yeah. You yeah. Know, you know, you did an episode in Bern, Switzerland, and I I had uh, Rick Kempfer, who's an award-winning author, on the show a little while ago. We did a whole episode about Switzerland, and one thing that he talked about on that episode was how good the water was. You know, and, and water's yeah. not something you immediate when you talk about food and drink and stuff, it's not something that you think of immediately off the top of your head, but of course, water is the building block of life, and it's the most important drink on the planet. And so I was really glad when I saw you talking about water and fountains in Bern, Switzerland. Yeah. And it's funny you say that. So in all throughout Switzerland, they are so proud that their water is so clean and so pure. And it might seem strange to us, but if you see a public fountain in America or in Italy or well, actually, no, Italy is a bad example, but in most places, you don't think for a second, hey, I'm going to walk over there and stick my water bottle in there and drink from it. Right. But that's what people do all throughout Switzerland. And it was kind of the first thing um, that our host showed us how to do. They said, hey, you want to look like a local? This is what you do. Um, and it was funny. So going from Switzerland, we last year, we also did a shoot in Germany and they have fountains there. And I sort of asked that question and they looked at me like I was crazy, like, no, don't drink from the fountains. What are you crazy? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure Switzerland isn't the only place, but they're really known for that. And it's just kind of nice. You just feel so kind of, you know, like you're just medieval or something like, oh, of course I'm going to drink. Well, that's what water fountains are supposed to be for. So, yeah, it was lovely. 
And it's also a, a great, I mean, I'm sure they didn't think of it at the time, but it's also very environmentally friendly because you're not buying. Of course. If you're out hiking in the Swiss mountains or, you know, going from town to town, you're not having to buy all these bottles of plastic, uh, plastic bottles of water. You're able to just refill, refill, refill. It's, uh, it's, it's brilliant and it's tasty. I like it. Stamp of approval on that. <laughs> um, Stamp of approval on that. Yeah. Let's let's move down to France now, um, because you did a few episodes down there as well. And one of them was in Aix in Provence. A lot of people mm-hmm. want to go down to Aix, want to go to Provence. What was your experience like down there? It lives up to all the hype, you know, and I think um, and this is going to sound sexist, but I'm saying it in favor of my own gender. So it's OK. I think maybe especially with women we have this sort of vision of, uh, oh, Provence, the south of France. Oh, it's heavenly. I've read about it in books. It lives up to all the hype and then some. It is, it's just beautiful. So Aix-en-Provence, actually, it, the type, it's just beginning with the type of stone that they use. It's this yellowy color. So it just feels warm all the time. And it's one of the many cities that prides himself also on fountains. Um, so they've got all these different fountains dedicated either to historical figures or mythological figures you know it's beautiful and it's yet another place that they obviously known for the food that they grow the produce that they grow so there's these fresh beautiful markets on saturday mornings um and of course um, a couple of little treats that they're known for uh have you heard of a, a calisson i i hadn't heard of it before but i saw it in your episode and I wanted to ask you about these things. The translation is is what? Little hugs, they're called. Um, yeah, talk about this candy a little bit because they just looked adorable. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's the, the, the full name is Le Roi René Calisson. So it's basically it's the Calisson of a specific king. Um, so the Calisson, it loosely translates, and there's lots of different theories, either to little smiles or little hugs. And what they are, they're kind of like oval shape, and they're made out of things that are only grown or that they take pride in growing uh, in Provence. So, you know, it's the citrus, it's the almonds, the, the almond flower out of it uh, could be apricots, definitely melons. And then um, for the cookie part itself, sometimes there's a wafer, sometimes there's they're not. And we actually got to see them making it. So they love this particular uh, candy so much. They have an entire factory with a museum attached to it. So we got to see them making them and they're so tiny. And I feel again, I was like, you can't see what I'm doing. But if you take your, uh, your a pointer finger in your thumb and you, you touch them, it fits right in that little space right there. And it's just, it's kind of the shape of like an, like an almond or an eye shape. And they, when they come hot out of the oven, they're really delicious. But then they also, when they solidify, they just kind of wrap them the same way you would a hard candy. And they have now all different flavors, but the true original flavor is more of that melon and orange and almond flour that it started with. And the quick backstory, because it wouldn't be featured on Curious Traveler if it didn't have a crazy story attached right, to it. Right. So, so the king um, wanted to marry his uh, his lovely lady, we'll just say. Um, but apparently she never smiled. And so long story short, he got his chefs to create this special candy, handed it to her. She ate it. And for the first time ever, she smiled. And I was like, wow, what what more could you ask for? <laughs> um, and my one of my favorite things, and I, it's, I, I swear, I'm, I'm such a sucker for packaging. And of course, in France, everything's beautiful. And even the packaging they have for these little candy 
90s are just so beautiful. I'm like, take my money, take my money now. I'm getting all of these and I'm never throwing the box away. I mean, you know, everything is just a little bit prettier in France. (laughs) In X as well, you did a segment on uh, Cezanne. And from a foodie foodie standpoint, he did all of these still lifes of fruits and, you know, food and stuff like that. That's kind of his calling card, right? Um, what, what did you, what did you take away from that? Um, were you able to, to learn anything about, uh, who Cezanne was from just looking at his paintings? In X, uh, there is his original studio, uh, which you can visit and that's what we did. So what, what I learned about him was, so he lived in X. And then he would walk up the hill to his little, you know, art hideaway. So he'd have peace and quiet to paint. And once you're up there, you see the whole landscape and the countryside. And you're like, oh, this is Provence. I get it now. He also had a little, uh, a little other little private overlook where he painted um, the mountain over and over again. But back to your original question with the oranges. So, um, you know, as an artist, he was mastering doing the basic shapes you know he's got the cone he's got the the cylinder um he's got the sphere so he did that over and over again and um when we visited the uh curator i'll call her a curator i think she was more of a tour guide was so wonderful in explaining and i don't know how, how much you know about art history but um Cezanne was known for doing his sort of wonky perspective so instead of just sitting in one spot and looking at it and drawing what he saw he would walk around it and try to draw all the perspectives all within <laughs> the same painting it is fascinating and actually in his studio um i don't know if you're, you're familiar with the bathers but it's giant so his ceilings are really really high big enough to hold this masterpiece the bathers and then he actually had built this little tiny side little door where he'd hand the painting out to his uh employee who was outside who carefully then grabbed it from him so he could then see it out in the sunlight um, while it was still wet (laughs) and then somehow pass it back back through. So it's all of these little details, all these fun things. And even his hat and his uh, artist smock, his cloak are still hanging on the door hook there. So to me, I think it's amazing that they've opened this up as a tourist site to see. So anybody who's an art fan, I mean, I really highly recommend it. It's fascinating. And speaking of artists, you went down to Arles and uh, kind of walked in the steps of Van Gogh. One thing that I found interesting in this episode, Christine, is you talked about uh, the painting Cafe Terrace at Night, which is a famous, uh, it was was considered a masterpiece of uh, Van Gogh's. But what I didn't know is that it might have been inspired by The Last Supper. Can you explain that uh, relationship between those two paintings? Yeah, I mean, how fascinating is that? So this is this is a newer theory in the art world. Um, but I decided why not present it as a theory in my show? Why not? Because as long, you know, it's a theory. I it's so funny. So much like yourself, I've, you know, I'm familiar with that painting. I've seen it, but I never looked closely. So here's the theory that if you look really closely at so Cafe Terrace at night, um, the perspective is you're standing outside the uh, cafe and you're you're seeing the entire length of the yellow awning and you can see all the tables there on the uh, the terrace and there's a couple of patrons there and you don't think too much of it now if you zoom in or if you're seeing it in person you look really closely you will see uh 
Now, here's here's where it gets a little loosey goosey on the on the theory. Twelve or thirteen figures, with one in the middle wearing white, who's taller than the rest, and the rest of the figures kind of coming out from him in a kind of a pyramid shape. So the theory is that the figure in the middle is Jesus. And the window behind him is a cross and that all of the people sitting around him are the 12 apostles. Now, I'm just going to do a little asterisk to this. When you look at it, the 12th person is sort of outside the cafe. So there's really only 11 in there. So anyway, it's it's to me, it was such a fascinating theory as a big art fan. Um, it kind of blew me away. I was like, I've never looked at it that closely. I was like, wow. Um, and I do think that possibly um, there is a letter uh, that Van Gogh had written to his brother that might have alluded to that. So it's really fascinating stuff. It's really fascinating stuff. Let's let's talk about one more France episode, which was uh, Dijon and Bonn. Yes. Um, you went, so I've been looking at going to Dijon. I don't know if we're going to make it this year. But um, I've just been kind of superficially looking at it, checking flights and whatnot and how we would get there and some of the main sites. And there is a food and wine museum. When you showed this on your program, I was like, this thing was blowing me away. It looks absolutely phenomenal for foodies. That's exactly what it is. It is phenomenal for foodies. Um, And so, first of all, just for Dijon in general, um, I and you have to go the right time of year, as with anything else, it can get crowded. But if you love Paris, go to Dijon because it's got all it has that same feel. The architecture is glamorous and gorgeous and fantastic, but it's a little bit smaller and it's a little bit less crowded. So you won't lose your mind like you sometimes do in Paris and Rome and all these big places. But the Food and Wine Museum, that's a that's a fairly recent um, new construction that they have there. But the site they chose was uh, has a church at its center, which is where the museum is. And then around it used to be a hospital. And so it's got new buildings mixed with the old. And the main museum, again, it's inside this gorgeous church where you're looking on the outside. You're like, this is stunning. And they did such a great job of really expressing and appreciating how, you know, you you think sometimes, you know, foodie stuff is this very highbrow elitist thing. And at least the message from this particular museum is, no, it starts with the farmers. It starts with the workers. Hmm. It starts with the land. And it, it really explains, you know, how this soil is unique because of this climate and these weather patterns. And I just found the whole thing fantastic. And they've got, I mentioned before, I'm a sucker for labels. <laughs> they have all these really great kind of um, package, uh, posters of these packaging, um, you know, things for boxes and whatever else throughout the ages, you know, you get the 1930s kind of art deco style and just, it's fantastic. The whole thing was great. And then when you're done with that, you you have a thousand choices of places to eat and drink after. So it's like, perfect, perfect. Sign me up. (laughs) I love how France is really elevating their um, food culture into these large format uh, museums. It reminds me in Bordeaux, there's a huge wine center there that is yeah. amazing. And it's it's fairly new. I mean, it's not brand new like this one sounds like, but it's still fairly new. And I'm so glad to see that, you know, when we talk about culture, a lot of times it's like museums and paintings and architecture. And I think sometimes food gets left behind, but now France is really doing a good job of putting it front and center their uh, food heritage because it's so important in France. 
It is. And actually, um, if, if you don't mind, I want to kind of jump in for a second here. So actually, when we were filming, we went from Dijon all the way south to Provence. And it's a new um, push uh, from the National Tourism Office. They have this designated, I mean, it's the tastiest road trip ever. It's called the Valais de la Gastronomie. And it's basically exactly what you said. It's highlighting all of these small villages or larger cities that specialize in these beautiful foods, these beautiful you know wines and drinks and specialties. And it, it's a new, you know, because everybody knows Provence already. Everybody knows Paris already. But you may not know Bonn or some of these smaller villages and things along the way. And um, there's a website for it and all that stuff. You can go and it will tell you exactly the restaurants to go to or the B&Bs where you can stay and they're making food for you that's from their own farms or from their own gardens. Um, and it's exactly that. You're tasting your way through France. It's great. You mentioned the town of Bonn and you went there. You went to a mustard factory. I think of Dijon as the um, mustard city, but you found this really cool mustard factory in Bonn. Talk about that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, I thought that was the funniest thing. I said, okay, so we're we're going we're finally learning about Dijon mustard, Dijon mustard outside of Dijon in Bonn, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. It's still called a Dijon mustard, um, and it was called the uh, the Fallow F A L L O T. That's the name of the family, and they've had this um, mustard factory for many generations. In fact, the grandfather used to drive around the region in this bright yellow car uh, to deliver the mustard to everybody. And I'm a mustard fan. I love when it has the whole seeds in it. And they've got so many varieties. I mean, it's my mouth watering just thinking about it. And, you know, you kind of think you're like, well, mustard's a funny thing to specialize in. It's so good. It is just so good. Um, and so there again, they sort of have a museum there. You get to have a tour of the factory. Then they have a museum that, again, goes back to, yes, um, this is a fine thing to have in fine restaurants and you know, that sort of thing. But also it all starts with the farmers and this specific type of land that can grow these things. Um, and the grandson is now the owner. And he was very sweet. And so we did this fun little segment where we take a mortar and pestle and try to do it by hand. It is so much harder than you think it is. <laughs> I was like, I've been doing this for days. Um, and another fun thing I learned. Um, so a Dijon mustard, most people know or think they know, is the thing that makes it Dijon is it has a white wine in it or white wine vinegar. This to really be classified as Dijon, it has to have verjus, I think that's right, um, which is a special type of process done to white wine only grown in the region before it's added to the mustard seeds. So it's, it's like, it is like wine. They take it all very, very seriously. For good reason. I'm a big mustard fan, and I mentioned this once uh, before on the podcast, is, uh, you know, when we go to France, oftentimes we'll go and we will bring back our suitcase filled with mustard because, I mean, you yes. just you go into the grocery store and they have amazing mustard yes. there. It's it's the best. I, I love it. I'm a big mustard person, too. We both, me and good. my girlfriend, Karen, we both love mustard. Well. Christine, it's just been a delight catching up with you. Like I said, I watched all 12 episodes of the new season, loved them all. We touched on several of them, but not all of them. You went to Estonia, you went to the Netherlands, you visited some other places too. So uh, folks should definitely seek this out, uh, the new season of Curious Traveler. And it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, now I'm going to leave you and go eat a huglia pastetti with a side of fallow moutard. Um, and then for dessert, maybe have a calisson uh, dex. 
How about that? How about that for a meal? <laughs> and some Swiss chocolate too. <laughs> and some Swiss chocolate. Can't forget that part. You're very sweet. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay. That's Christine Van Blockland. Always great to have her on the show. What a wealth of interesting information she is. And the new season of Curious Traveler is airing now on PBS. Check your local listings. You can find out more about Christine and her show on her website, CuriousTravelerTV.com. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, it's a mustard catastrophe. Worcestershire sauce with figs and a funky ketchup as we talk condiments. Don't miss that. Until then, I've got lots and lots of food and travel at DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a new story about something called coffee milk. No, no, not milk in your coffee, but coffee milk. It's a unique beverage only found in Rhode Island. You can read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also posted a new video about Cuba, and it's not the one in the Caribbean. It's in Portugal. You can see that by clicking on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or by going to my YouTube channel at DestinationEatDrink946. And remember to vote for Destination Eat Drink in the 15th Annual Taste Awards. I've got a link where you can vote in the show notes. And thank you very much. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.